We turn together in the scriptures this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read the first 20 verses of the chapter. Pay special attention to verses 17 through 20, where our Lord gives some commentary about the law of God. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Thus far we read God's holy word. We consider this morning the first part of Lord's Day 34, the second part of Lord's Day 34 discusses the first commandment. We will save that, Lord willing, for next time. This morning we consider the law of God in general. And the first question asks, what is the law of God? And there we find the law as it is recorded in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which we've already heard earlier in our worship service. And then this question, how are these commandments divided into two tables? the first of which teaches us how we must behave towards God, the second, what duties we owe to our neighbor. 
we consider just that much this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as sinners who have been saved by the Son of God, we want to please the Lord our God in the life that we live here on this earth. And because of that desire in our hearts to please him, we go to him and we ask him the question, how must I live? What must I do? How can I please thee in my life? As one who has been chosen, one who has been redeemed and washed by the blood of thy Son, and one who has been so richly blessed by the love of my Savior, how can I live my life now? What can I do to be pleasing to thee and a blessing to others? How must I live as a wife with my husband in the home? and as a husband with my wife? How must I live as a mother in the home and as a father in the workplace? What must I do as a young person at college, as a child at school, as a person who is a citizen of this country and a member of this community and a member of this congregation? How am I to live, Lord? That's what we ask him. In all of the spheres and relationships of life, In every aspect of life, within my soul, the words I speak, the actions I perform, how would you have me to live? Because of our desire to please him, we go to him with those questions. And the Lord answers those questions every Sunday when he speaks to us his law. Every Sunday, God gives us the answer to those questions of how to please him, how to show our gratitude to him for all that he has done for us. He answers those questions, too, throughout the whole of his word, the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, in which he explains, through Moses and the prophets and the apostles, the meaning of his law and the meaning of his commandments. He explains carefully and unpacks each of those commandments one by one in countless places throughout his word. And there he's answering our questions. How can I live to please thee? God also answers those questions when he sends us, when he raises up before us, preachers of his law and gospel. When he sends messengers into our midst, to open those scriptures, to read those scriptures, and to explain and apply those scriptures to us, he's answering our question. How must I live to please thee, the Lord my God? And when he brings that preaching to bear on our consciences, and when he says to us in our hearts, obey my law, that's how. This morning, the question that we face in the Catechism is very simple. What is the law of God? The Catechism raises that question significantly here in the third and last part of the Catechism. The first part treating the sinfulness of man, the second part the salvation of man, and the third part 
the thankfulness of man. It is in that third part on the thankful life that we are to live that the Catechism raises this question, what is the law of God? Because in the previous Lord's Day, the Catechism taught us that good works of thankfulness are those that arise out of faith, are done according to the law of God, and are done to the glory of God. So now the Catechism says, well, what is this law of God? And there we find the Ten Commandments. And so the Catechism is teaching us by placing the law in this place that the law of God is the rule and the answer for the whole life of Christian gratitude. So I call your attention to it this morning under the theme, Knowing the Law of the Lord Our God. We notice, first of all, the law given to Israel at Sinai. Secondly, the law fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the law based on the very nature of God. We all know the prologue to the Ten Commandments because we hear it every single Sunday. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That prologue to the Ten Commandments is the gospel. And it shows us that the commandments are to be viewed in the context of the gospel, always. The Lord, before he gave his law to his people, first brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The scriptures record the exodus, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt as one of the greatest wonders of salvation in the whole of the scriptures. How God, through a mighty hand and a stretched out arm, wrenched his people free from the grip of Pharaoh and led them to the shores of the Red Sea. And how he clave asunder the waters of the sea and divided it into two walls of water with dry ground in the midst of those two walls and led his people with Moses in the front right into the sea, through the midst of the sea, and out of the sea on the other shore. And then, shielding them from the eyes of Pharaoh with the cloud, the pillar of smoke, he caused Pharaoh to chase after them with his chariots and horsemen into the midst of the sea, thinking that he could catch them. But then he caused the waters, those two great walls, to come crashing down upon Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen, sweeping them away, burying and drowning them under the waves of the surging sea. And there his people stood on the other shore, safe, secure, saved from Egypt once and for all. It was only after that miracle of salvation that God gave the law to his people. And notice, he did not give his law to any other nation. He did not give his law to Egypt. He did not give it to Assyria or to Babylon or to Greece. He gave his law to Israel. Even though it is true that he wrote the requirements of his law on the conscience of every single human being since the dawn of time and even up to this day, God makes known that he has a law. God makes known to every single man that he lays requirements upon him. Yet, God only gave his law outwardly and explicitly to one people, to one nation, to the nation of Israel. The nation with whose forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he had established his covenant of grace. 
and established it with them and their seed after them in their generations for an everlasting covenant. He had elected them, chosen them in his love and in his grace and set them up as a special people above all the other nations on the face of the earth, merely out of his love and tender mercy for them. And it was then that he led that nation down to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, on the third day after they arrived, they gathered around the mountain. And God came down from heaven into that mountain so that it began to shake. And it began to be filled with thunders and lightnings and smoke and fire as the divine presence came to rest on that mountain. That God spoke these Ten Commandments with a loud, booming voice so that all his people could hear the requirements of his law. As there was lightning flashing and thunder booming and the ground shaking under their feet, they heard with their ears the voice of God himself speaking his law. And afterward, God led Moses up into the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and God wrote with his own finger on two tables of stone these Ten Commandments and gave them to Moses to give to Israel. And we know how when Moses threw down those tables of stone in his anger at the children of Israel and they broke into a million pieces, later he went back up into the mountain and received two new tables of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. God gave his law to Israel. In that law, in these Ten Commandments, God expressed to Israel what he deemed good and evil, what he deemed to be right and wrong for them. And if Jehovah of hosts considers something to be good or evil, right or wrong, then that means that it is good or evil, right or wrong, in the absolute sense of the word. It does not matter that God gave his law only to this one nation in this one remote location, this mountain place in the desert, thousands of years ago. We may not say that because of that, this law is time-bound and culture-bound, and it's really only a law for the Israelites and the Jewish or Hebrew people. We know that because in this law, although he gave it to one people in one place at one time, God revealed to them what he considers to be moral and immoral for every human being, in every place and in every time and in every culture, even unto all eternity. It does not make a difference, the shifting sands of human cultures, the rise and fall of empires, the changing of human laws and ordinances, the changing tides of politics from left to right and from right to left, as laws are put on the books and revoked from the books. The law of God stands sure and permanent, emblazoned upon tables of stone for all time and history. He gave to Moses two tables of stone to show, as the Catechism teaches us, first of all, how we are to behave towards God, the first four commandments. And then, in the second table, the duties that we owe to our neighbor, the next six commandments. So that 
These Ten Commandments encapsulate the whole duty of man toward God and toward his fellow man in all circumstances of life. And it cannot escape our notice that in these Ten Commandments, by the literal words that God spoke and wrote, he wanted to draw their attention to the things that they must not do. He wanted to draw attention to the things that he considered to be sin. And so most of the commandments are put in a negative form. As God says, for example, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down to them. Thou shalt not serve them. That's sin. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's sin. That's an abomination to me. That kindles my wrath and fills me with fury and indignation so that I break forth in judgment and destruction upon those who break these commandments. He says throughout the law that he visits the iniquity of fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. These are things that he takes very, very seriously. He says that he will not hold them guiltless who take his name in vain. He takes that very seriously. This is God's law. This is the law of the holy and the righteous God. This is the law of him who punishes with everlasting destruction those who break his commandments. Now God gave these ten commandments to the children of Israel in a particular context. In a particular place and time, he gave these commandments to them after he had brought them out of the land of Egypt, after he had freed them from the land of slavery, and at the time when he was organizing them as his covenant nation at Mount Sinai. That's what he was doing there. He was organizing them into a nation, a covenant nation. And that was the time and the place when he revealed his law to them. Because he was teaching them, this is how I want you to live as my covenant people in the midst of the world. This is how you are to behave as my nation in the midst of all the other nations. I am the Lord thy God who have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. These are my commandments. This is how you must live. But if we consider the law in the light of the rest of Scripture, in the light of the New Testament, and from the perspective of the New Testament, then we also come to know that God's purpose in giving his law to Israel was to expose the wretched sinfulness of his covenant people. At Mount Sinai, God put his people under the law, as Paul puts it. He placed them under the law, under a schoolmaster. And that schoolmaster of the law was going to teach his people something very, very important. It was going to teach them the wretchedness, the miserableness, the wickedness of their sin, that they are a sinful, a corrupt, and a depraved people from their childhood up. The church was in its childhood in the Old Testament. The church was like a little child, and it was placed under a schoolmaster. 
a disciplinarian. And that schoolmaster of the law said to the little child of God's church, you must not do that. This is how you must behave. This is how you must live. This is how you must act in your marriage, in your work, in the church, with your neighbor. And then when the children of Israel disobeyed those commandments, the schoolmaster came down hard on them. That's wrong. That's evil what you're doing. You're you're acting wickedly. You become worthy of God's wrath. You are kindling the wrath of the Lord your God by that behavior. So the law was a schoolmaster, and, and it was so from the very start. Because as you well recall, in the very moment when God was writing the commandments with his finger on those tables of stone, at that very moment when Moses was up in the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel were at the foot of the mountain asking Aaron to make them a golden calf, a calf that they could worship as if it was the Lord their God. When God was saying, Thou shalt not make graven images, thou shalt not worship me in that way, they were blatantly, deliberately disobeying and rebelling against him. And they danced around the golden calf. And they stripped off their clothes. And in nakedness they committed fornication. And they drank themselves drunk and they partied around that calf. Until Moses came down and cast the Ten Commandments to the ground and broke them in pieces. The law exposed the wretched sinfulness of the people of God. And it's the same story from that point all the way through the rest of the history of the Old Testament, throughout the history of the wilderness wandering, the history of the judges, the history of the kings. It's the same story. The schoolmaster of the law exposes the children of Israel as a people that are constantly forsaking the Lord and turning to idols, turning to Baal and Ashtaroth, turning to Moloch and Chemosh, sacrificing their little children in the flame of the altar to Molech, the god of Moab, committing fornication and all the abominations of the Canaanites repeatedly, again and again. The history of the Old Testament is a history of the people of God hating their neighbor, cheating the poor and the widow and the stranger with unjust weights and unjust balances, taking advantage of people, manipulating, abusing, oppressing people. It's a sad and sorry history. So the scriptures mean to reveal to us in unmistakable terms through the books of the Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and the prophets. Not just the wretchedness of the children of Israel, but also the sinfulness of you and me. Because the law is also a schoolmaster that teaches us how sinful we are by nature. That we have this nature that continues to produce all this wretched filth and pollution. The law is a schoolmaster that shows us that in order to bring us to Christ. It is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, the Christ of whom the prophets spoke throughout the Old Testament. Because the gospel was always mingled with the law, and there was always the promise, the prophecy. 
The seed of the woman is coming. A faithful priest is coming. A righteous branch is coming. One who will bring salvation and righteousness and forgiveness. Look to Christ. Look to the coming Christ. He will save you. He will justify. He will forgive. He will deliver you from your sins. So as Paul puts it, the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. And not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. We may rest in Jesus Christ for our justification because he has fulfilled this law. And now we turn our attention to the Sermon on the Mount that we read this morning. When God sent his Son into the world, Jesus taught God's people about the law. And Jesus by his teaching, showed that he is not diminishing the law, but indeed he is elevating the law. He said, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount that we read, that until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law until all is fulfilled. By that, our Lord meant that Not even one little letter of the law, a jot, will be taken away until the whole law is fulfilled. A jot was one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And not even one tittle, that is, one of the punctuation marks of the letters of the law, not even one tittle will be taken away until heaven and earth pass, until all the law is fulfilled. And Jesus warned us that whoever breaks even the least of God's commandments, or if anyone teaches others to break even the least of God's commandments, that person or that preacher will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus exalts the law of God before us. And he says that whoever does the law, the commandments, and teaches the commandments, in all of their perfection, in all of their beauty, in all of their strictness, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus went on, as we saw in Matthew chapter 5, to say that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do not think that you can enter the kingdom of heaven by giving to God a shabby and an imperfect obedience to his law. That's what the Pharisees thought. They thought that all they had to do was keep the outward commandments. I've never killed anybody. I've never committed physical adultery. I've never stolen, literally stolen money from anybody, they thought. And so they thought they were righteous. But Jesus says, oh no, Your righteousness has to exceed, it has to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then if you ask, well, what is that righteousness that God requires? Jesus goes on to explain. You have heard that it has been said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, that if you are even angry with your brother, 
even once without a cause, then you're in danger of the judgment. And if you call your brother names, like Reka and Fool, you're in, you're in danger of hellfire. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if a man even looks at a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so on and so forth. The Lord teaches us the surpassing righteousness of the law. Not just external, but internal. The Lord has a demand on our hearts. The Lord binds our hearts. He touches and says, I claim your heart. You must obey me in your heart. Perfectly. And our Lord would also go on to teach that the law of God is not just a bunch of negative prohibitions. So that as long as we're not doing the things that we're not supposed to be doing, then we can be righteous. But then he goes on to say, no, no, it's also positive. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul, all thy mind and all thy strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. But our Lord Jesus Christ not only taught us the true and deep meaning of the law of God. He also said in Matthew 5, verse 17, these beautiful, glorious words, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he didn't simply mean by that, I have come to teach you more fully the meaning of the law. He meant, I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to obey the law. I have come to render perfect obedience to the law that you were not able to render. He came to obey the law himself in our place. In Galatians 4, the apostle says that the Son of God was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. He was born under the law. We said that at Mount Sinai, God placed his people under the law. But the Son of God came down under that same law himself. And he broke away through it for his people by keeping it, by obeying it in every jot and every tittle, in its inward and outward commandments, by not doing what he was not supposed to do and by doing all that God wanted him to do. And then he also redeemed us from the curses of the law. The curses that God showered down upon his people for their disobedience in the Old Testament and the temporal sense of the word. Those curses which they also deserved in the eternal sense of the word. He redeemed us from those curses on the cross. As it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. He took all the curses of the law upon himself. And that's why Paul says in Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Gentile. Christ is the end. Christ is the goal. The law all drives to Christ and points to Christ. Trust in Christ, and you will be righteous, 
now and for all eternity. Trust in Christ and you have justification freely and fully. In Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, we read that on his first missionary journey, when Paul went into the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, he preached Christ Jesus, crucified and risen. And then he said to them in the call of the gospel that they believe in Christ, because in Christ, by faith, they can be justified from those things which they could not be justified through the law. So the gospel comes gloriously as the gospel of Christ Jesus. Believe in him and you are righteous forever. And then we know the reason why we must strive to keep that law ourselves. Jesus is the reason. Jesus is the reason we desire to obey, the reason we must obey, the reason we can obey, and the reason we will obey God's law. God comes to us, the New Testament church, and he says to us in a much higher and better sense, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. He says it this way to us, I am the Lord, your God, who delivered you from the bondage of your wretched sinfulness. I am the Lord, your God, who set you free from guilt and shame. I am the Lord, your God, who gave my son to die the accursed death for you, to save you from all your sins and miseries and bring you into eternal glory. Oh, my people, obey my law. Oh, my people, I have sent my son for you to deliver you from the curse and condemnation. He set you free. You're free. My people, obey my law. Obey. You are not under the curse. You are not under condemnation. You don't have to keep the law for your righteousness. You're free. Obey my law. Keep my law. Love my law. Don't use this liberty as an occasion for the flesh. Don't use it as an excuse to fulfill carnal desires. Keep my commandments. In love, serve one another in thankfulness. Oh, my daughters, he says, keep my law by serving your family in the home, happy in your loving service, happy in the joys of motherhood, remembering as you strive to keep my law and never forgetting that you are the daughters of the king who gave his precious blood to purchase you on the cross. Remembering that there is no condemnation to you who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit in Christ Jesus. Remembering as you strive to keep my law and to obey my commandments that you are absolutely secure in Christ and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You are secure in his unconditional, sacrificial love. In the security and the confidence and the freedom of the love of Christ, obey my law. You are free to obey it. 
You are free from the crushing burden of thinking in your duties in the home as a wife, as a mother. That somehow through these things you have to become acceptable to God. You have to earn his acceptance, earn his approval, earn his love. No, no. His love is always upon you. It is always and absolutely, unconditionally upon you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to give his body to be broken and his blood shed. And he calls you now, my daughters, mothers, wives, walk in obedience to my law in all of your callings, in all aspects of your life, in the home, in the church, in the world. Men of God, obey my law too. As you go forth from the home into the workplace, working with your hands the thing that is good. As citizens of this country, labor, work, press, press into obedience to God's law, knowing and remembering you are a child of the living God. You do not have to be afraid of being condemned or rejected by God for falling short. You feel that you fall short. You do fall short. We all fall short, but continue to strive to obey his commandments, always remembering who you are in Christ, a son of the living God. And nothing can change that. Children, young people, God says to you, obey my law when you go to school tomorrow. Young people, when you go to college, when you go into the workplace, obey my commandments. In all aspects of your life, remembering that you are not the children of darkness. You are the children of light. So let us all believe and confess what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Finally, we may ask the question, why does God consider these Ten Commandments to be the expression of what is good and evil? Why are there only ten commandments? Why are there not more commandments? And why these ten commandments? Why are these particular things right and wrong? And the answer to that question, beloved, is not that God in eternity arbitrarily or randomly decided that these ten things would be the rule for the moral life of human beings. God is not arbitrary in anything that he does. There is a reason, a deep reason, why these ten things are the standard of right and wrong for us human beings. And the deepest answer to that question is this, that they express and are based upon the very nature of God himself. 
These commandments, every one of them, expresses a truth about the nature of God. It reveals who God is and what God is like. That's why God expects us to do these things in the first place. And the reason there are ten commandments, the reason God organized these things into ten precepts is that he has determined that the number ten will be the number of completeness. Just think of your ten fingers and your ten toes. You have a complete set. There we have revealed right in nature, right there in our bodies, the fact that God has chosen the number ten to be a symbol of completion and completeness. And so when we study the Ten Commandments, we're not just learning a number of things that we're supposed to do and not do. We're learning about the very nature of God. To take just one example in conclusion this morning, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why does God tell us that? The answer is that there are no other gods. He's teaching us something, something that we couldn't know simply by looking around us. And the whole history of religions is a testimony to the fact that human beings in our sinfulness look for many gods. But God has revealed to us in his word, no, no, there's only one, and I am he. And that's why you must not have any other gods before you. I am the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and therefore I and I alone am worthy of your deepest trust, of your most passionate worship, of your sweetest love, more than anyone and anything else. That's what God wants from us, because he is the only true God. In the first commandment, he teaches us the oneness of the divine being. And then there's this too. These ten commandments are expressing to us what is best for us as human beings. If God is the only true God and there is no other, then he is the only one who can give us meaning and purpose in life. He is the only one who can provide for us and protect us in all the things that we need in life. He's the only one who can be a refuge and a strength to us, who can be a father to us, a provider to us. He's the only being in all of the universe who is able to satisfy our deepest longings. The law of God lays out the way of human flourishing so that when you go outside of that law, you enter into the realm of misery and damnation. But it's in the way of the law that we experience flourishing and blessedness. And we conclude then with Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Amen.
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do delight in thy gospel and law, and we thank thee, Lord, for revealing it to us. We thank thee for showing us our sinfulness and also for showing us the way that we should go as those who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. So, Father, continue to lead us down that good path of thy law, that we may abound in works of thankfulness, and that we may strive to increase in love. 